So we're going to go into our message for this morning, and on that note, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 28. And I'm going to invite you to open it to that chapter and leave it open to that chapter because we're going to look at the whole chapter. So I hope you haven't made lunch plans. I have a sense of humor. The people who are part of The Rock for a long time, they don't laugh anymore. Like they just, I know, I know. So no, it's going to be all right. We're going to conclude this morning our series that we've been going through. It's probably, I don't know, it's like 10 weeks, I think, called Knowing Jesus. And, and the purpose of this series was and is uh, for us to go through stories in the Gospels in particular where Jesus is obviously preeminent. Uh, he's the main feature of the story, but also where he's speaking and teaching. Uh, and we've been asking you as a church and as individuals to truly uh, just listen to Jesus. Hear him. Imagine in your own mind seeing him. I had an opportunity just yesterday actually to speak with uh, one of the members of our church who had an amazing opportunity in the last week where he flew to Rome and he got to film uh, the fellow who was playing Jesus in the series called The Chosen and about a documentary of some kind and that'll be more on that I'm sure in the future. But what's amazing to me about that is that series. We were talking about that uh, with him yesterday and I've been encouraging people to watch that series, it's so well done. It's true to the scripture, which is sometimes remarkable coming out of Hollywood or television or movies, Um, but it's beautifully portrayed. And the man who plays, his first name is Jonathan, I believe, who plays Jesus. Um, Yeah, it just represents him in a way that I, I think we hopefully can see. And especially when we hear the word read. So this morning, normally our pattern would be I would read the whole chapter uh, or the whole text for today. I'm not going to do that just to save some time. We will go through it, every verse of the chapter this morning. And I want to show you basically three things this morning. Your title for this final message today is Knowing the Risen Jesus. Amen? He's alive. This is not Easter Sunday, but we can say that every Sunday, can we not? He's alive. And I hope to show you three things today in this amazing chapter. Three things. First, the dawn of a new day. Secondly, the cover-up begins. Oh, yes, it does. And thirdly, the one with all authority. Before I read the opening verses, can we pray one more time before we look at God's Word? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for a beautiful new day. Lord, thank you for the skies that are clearing of the smoke But on that note, Lord, we pray for those who are fighting the fires all across our province, all across North America, for that matter, and the world. There are so many fires, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would bring rain to our country and to the world. We pray that you'd be with the firefighters and those who are being displaced from their homes. Um, Lord, we pray for safety and protection. Lord, we thank you for a day where we can gather uh, peacefully in our community of Squamish right here on the street, and we can open the doors and we can proclaim your word. We can sing worship to you like we just did. And so, Lord, we're so grateful that we get to do that. I'm grateful, Lord, to be here today to be able to open your word and to speak your word to my brothers and sisters and friends here this morning. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help me. Help me to speak this word in truth and in love. And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So point number one. The dawn of a new day, first two verses in Matthew 28, read this way. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary 
went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. Imagine that picture. Just imagine that picture. I remember when we first uh, moved to Squamish, we were driving around uh, looking for a place to rent to begin with before we bought here and before we planted this church, my wife and I and so forth. And I remember driving along Highway 99 coming up to Mamquam and uh, going to turn there and go look around the highlands and stuff. And there was, a, there was a roadside memorial that I could see from the highway. There was, you, can't, you wouldn't see it today because of the trees and some of the brush that's there today, but there was this roadside memorial with a cross and flowers and, and there were pictures on the ground. And you couldn't quite see it as you're driving because you should keep your eyes on the road, right? Uh, a few days later, I'm on my bike and I'm coming down uh, my mountain bike because you know, I moved to Squamish, I've got to get a mountain bike. And uh, I, I'm, I'm driving by it and I stopped. And I looked at this roadside memorial, and it was a memorial for a young boy who had been killed running across Highway 99. So very tragic, right? And, and there's this memorial set there, and there's pictures of him, and there's the cross, of course, and there's a little bit of a story of his life, and, and, and um, there's some little um, stuffed toys and dolls and things like that. And there's this memorial where this boy had passed away. And that's what we do as human beings, isn't it? That's what we do in our world, in our culture. When things like that happen, tragedies like that happen, we, we create memorials. Some of you who are part of our church will remember how that went last year for us and for our community when a very large memorial was placed outside of independent grocer in the Garibaldi Estates area of Squamish, and how beautiful it was to see that uh, so many people in the community came out. They just had to come out and bring flowers and, and bring pictures and, and, and cards and letters and, and, and just, to, just to stand there and, and to grieve, to cry. As humans, that, that's what we do. We, we actually need to do that. We need to do that. Now imagine, now imagine, in our story here today, in our text today, Imagine you have been following this man, Jesus, for a few years. You've been following him, someone whom you've come to believe was much more than a mere mortal, who was in fact in the Messiah, the very Son of God. He's the Messiah. He has shown them his unconditional love. especially in the case of Mary Magdalene and the kind of woman whom she was previously, who they all were previously. And yet Jesus, Jesus just showed them this unconditional love and imagine that, how they're feeling. And, and they'd seen the miracles. They'd seen him feed, feed thousands of people. They'd seen him heal everyone who needed healing. Not just occasionally. Everyone who needed healing, when he was healing, he healed everyone, including the dead. They'd seen all this. They'd heard him preach and teach with authority about the kingdom of God and the hope that was to come in the Messiah. And and, and so they're like, they've given their all to this man. They have followed him intensely for two to three years with love and affection. And then he's brought up on these trumped-up charges, falsely accused, 
scourged, beaten, and whipped. Crucified. And he dies. And then he's buried. I, I, just I honestly can't imagine... I mean, it's tragic enough for when you lose somebody so suddenly in our world today, right? It's tragic. It's shocking. It's so sad. But, but on this occasion, and so here we have these women, Mary Magdalene and the other, and they head to the memorial site. They head to the tomb. They head up there as some of the other women did as well. And who knows, maybe, maybe they were also like some of the other women going up there with spices to prepare his body, which they, they couldn't finish doing on the Friday, if you remember, because he was crucified just before the uh, Passover began. So at 6 o'clock, they had to get him down and get him buried, and they didn't have time before the beginning of the Passover to fully prepare his body, which is what they did. It was how they prepared a body for burial in those days with spices. And so you can imagine... They're going up there to potentially do that, also to cry, to stare at the tomb, and maybe hope against all hope that it's not real, that he is actually alive. And so you can imagine their grief, right? Just imagine their grief on that day. It's actually beautiful how Matthew has ordered his gospel, really beautiful. As Rudy highlighted uh, last Sunday, each gospel reveals a, a different but important aspect of who Jesus really is. Just slightly different wrinkles about his character and, and his mission and why he came to do what he... And, and it's beautiful because in all of those Gospels, as I hope we've been seeing through our series, is it helps us to know Jesus more fully and better. From the opening verses, Matthew has presented Jesus as none other than Israel's Messiah and King. You'll remember it opens with that lovely genealogy, right? Like, begat, begat, begat. On and on it goes, right? And it's just the genealogy, which, which proves that Jesus is the rightful racial heir of Abraham and the rightful kingly ruler heir of David. And so it's beautiful. It's marvelous. And, and then he, he orchestrates it all through his gospel to keep showing Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as the hope of the world, as the king. And then his concluding chapter, chapter 28, begins by telling us that this is it. This is the first day of the week. This Sunday is the dawn of a brand new day. I read a few commentaries, obviously, in preparation for this, but it was, I was surprised, actually, at the number of commentaries that made the same comment, and that was is that this chapter in many commentators' minds is actually the fulcrum of the Bible. And it's not the incarnation, and it's not Good Friday, the, the cross. Those are all important. It's not the beginning of the New Testament either. It's this day is the fulcrum of the Bible. It's an amazing statement, and I have to say it's true. It is the most marvelous day in history. I hope you believe that and hope we see that today. It begins early in the morning with witnesses at the tomb. And as one might expect, with an announcement from God. 
big days God announces. Okay? The birth of Jesus, he announced. Big days are announced. In the beginning, God created. Kaboom. Let there be light. It's an announcement. There always is with God. The arrival, of course, of this announcement is via an angel who arrives to declare the arrival and via also a great earthquake that shakes the earth and the tomb stone door is rolled away and voila. I know some French. The tomb is empty. It is empty. Then we read in verses 3 and 4 about the angel. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and began, became, pardon me, like dead men. I, again, I, I have this crazy imagination. I hope you do too. But I just, I just imagine there's this angel. I, I don't know if he's a little chubby or what, but he's just, he's just sitting, rolling like the, 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 it's been rolled away. He's sitting on top of this, on his side, and he's just like, it was with my finger. It was, it was that easy. Okay, maybe I'm making that up, but I just imagine the power that this man had. Here Matthew describes in ways that we should note, actually. We should note this. Lightning and white as snow are words in the Greek, in those languages of that day, that depict a brilliance such as a flash that would certainly startle anyone or cause anyone to have fear. Have you ever had lightning strike close to you? Like literally a bolt of lightning? I have. In my, our home in Toronto when I was growing up, I was studying like a good high school student in my, my bedroom. And, and I mean, I, I assume it was like literally a bolt that happened right between our houses are really close together in Toronto, uh, brick houses. I mean, the, the, the light that came through the bedroom window in my room shocked the daylights out of me. I literally screamed and ran downstairs, Mommy, hello. It was frightening. You know, some people who have seen lightning strike right beside them have actually had heart attacks what we're seeing here. So let's see this as well. The key here is that these verses tell us this. (laughs) These very brave Roman centurions, trust me, come on, you've seen the movies, they were very brave. These were big, strapping men. They were incredibly brave, but in this case, at this scene and on this day, Fear overcame them. They fell to their knees and looked like dead men. They started shaking, in fact. But here's the best part. I think it's really a really good part. The women saw this, and although the angel and Jesus will say to them, do not be afraid, it appears like they didn't have the same level of fear as these brave Roman centurions. So next we hear the angel share the good news of the gospel with them. The angel speaks and says this in verses 5 and 7. Do not be afraid. Now, now he's actually saying this to everyone there, but specifically to the women. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said he would. So come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. 
done my job. Great job he had. <laughs> awesome job. So what's the good news? Obviously, come on. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's alive. I, I, again, I mean, I'm sure the women were crying before, but I'm sure they're crying more now. Tears of joy, right? But they haven't seen him yet. The angel invites them to look into the tomb, doesn't he? And we know from John's gospel, I believe it is, that they were invited to look in, and they did look in, and they saw that the linen clothes were actually neatly wrapped and laid on the table. That's important because it dispels something that we're going to read in a minute. Very much so. The linen clothes were there. And so they did look in. So next in verse 8, the angel instructs them to go and tell the boys that, that Jesus wants to meet with them in Galilee. And then as they leave, as they're leaving, still in shock and fear, I'm sure, but so happy to hear he's alive, then the risen Jesus actually appears to them. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus simply says, Hello. <laughs> Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. I, I, again, I, I mean, how incredibly beautiful is it that Jesus would, did he have to show up at that moment? I mean, they were off to tell the boys that, that Jesus wants to meet them in Galilee, and so they could go with the boys to Galilee, which they did, and, and they could see him again there, or they could see him, I should say, there. No. You know, Jesus feels that he needed to show up for the women. I think that's pretty special. It's a glorious picture. So now they know. Now they know for sure, for sure, right? They've seen him. They've touched his feet. They worshipped him. So in these brief 10 verses, Matthew announces to the world that a new day has dawned. Amen? I got to hear you. <laughs> okay, good. Sin, death, and the grave have been defeated. Have been defeated. So it's a great day. And the next scene, of course, is them meeting with Jesus in Galilee, right? Should be, right? Matthew has something he needs to tell us. Number two, the cover-up begins. Mm. Verses 11 to 15 say this, While they were going, while they were leaving, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Just tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while he was asleep. Linen clothes folded. Hello? And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread amongst the Jews to this day. So no, now I, I think you have to be asking yourself, I, I know I was asking myself, why in the world did Matthew think at this point, on this new dawning day, that this was necessary to tell us. Why would he just insert this? Why can't we just get to the, you know what happens at the end of Matthew 28, we're going to get there, right? Why can't we just get to that? Because that's what, whenever you go to Matthew 28, for the most part, 
most times when people are preaching this chapter, they preach the first part, right? The Resurrection Sunday on Easter Sunday. It's a great story. And then they go to the great what? You know, we'll get there. Don't worry about it. So why is he doing it? This account is only found in Matthew, by the way, in his gospel. So it's important to him that it be recorded. And again, we must ask why. Well, I think there are probably several reasons that we could look at. But the most obvious reason is this. Matthew's writing this gospel, right? And he's writing it approximately 30 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. So the church has been established. And what he's saying to us in this day, and as he's writing it, and it's going to the people who are reading it in that day, is he's saying, this is the same story they're telling to this day, isn't it? Yeah, it is. For 30 years, they've been telling the cover-up story. That's what he's trying to get across. And it's not just a story. It's a lie, of course, right? So when, whenever the, the apostles, just imagine, whenever the apostles preached the gospel, whenever anyone shared their faith with, with others in, 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 as the church is now exploding across all of the, the Middle East, you know, they preached the gospel, you know, Jesus, he died on the cross for your sins. He was risen on the third day. He's alive today. You should worship him like we do. Uh, yeah, but we heard, uh, no, we heard another story. We heard that his disciples came and stole his body, and come on, it's just, really. That story was being told to that day. It's still being told, right, to this day. I was going to grab a video clip. It's it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. I'm doing my final prep on Thursday, writing the notes up and stuff like that, and all of a sudden on my Instagram feed, I see something by Alpha Canada, and it's a 45-second little clip of uh, some young men and women being interviewed on the street uh, in England, but also two people were actually in downtown Vancouver. It was being filmed, and they were being asked the question, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Right? And, and a, a good third or half of the people are going, yes, absolutely. And so you're assuming these people are Christians, right? And they go, yes, absolutely. But it was interesting. There were two or three people who were going, absolutely not. Come on. Like 25, 30-year-olds, right? Just, but very adamant about it. Very adamant about the fact that, no, that couldn't possibly be happening. So in this story, we need to see this. There are two groups involved in the cover-up. First, there are the, again, supposedly brave and fearless Roman centurion soldiers, right? They're involved in it. Those given responsibility by the Roman governor Pilate at, at the behest of the Jewish leaders to guard the tomb. They had heard some stories about what might happen, and they wanted to make sure he didn't get out. <laughs> That's why they were sent there to guard this tomb. So, obviously, they're clearly not that brave as we've already seen. But now they fear the judgment of Pilate for their failure, which would likely mean their death. Right on. I can understand how they feel. So, they go to the chief priests and the elders for some help with their dilemma. Now, the religious leader's response is also very interesting. So, So, note this. This is important in the text. Note that the guards had told them all that had taken place. They, they told the religious leaders everything that took place while they were there. That's important for us to understand. So they told them about the women showing up probably around 6 a.m., really early in the morning. And then there was this flash of light and a brilliantly lit up angel 
Trust me, we saw it. Okay, it sounds crazy, but this is what we saw. Who opened the tomb by rolling the stone away with his little pinky finger. I made that part up, but I like it. And they reported all that the angel told them about Jesus. That he had risen from the dead. And that he was no longer dead, but alive. So they told them all of this. They reported it all to the religious leaders, and the best thing they can come up with is a cover-up? That's interesting. So, friends, don't forget that these men had been following Jesus for years, right? They'd been following him for years. They'd been questioning him, querying him, trying to trip him up. They had been listening to everything that he'd preached. They'd heard him preach about the kingdom of God and his claims to actually, in fact, be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, They'd also heard him say that he would be falsely accused, crucified, buried, and that he would rise again on the third day. He told them that three times that we know of in the Gospels. They knew this. That's why they had the guards at the tomb, to make sure it didn't happen. He's God. Are you going to stop him? Good luck with that. So what do we have here when we see grown religious leaders who should know their Old Testament Bibles about the Messiah, and who now choose to cover up the most momentous event day in history, if not just in their faith, but of the world. Should they not have taken counsel when they did take counsel and said, hey, listen, maybe what we should do, you know, it might be a good idea. Let's go to Galilee, as we've been told by the guards, they're going to see Jesus. Let's go there and see if he's there. Let's go see if we can find him for ourselves. Why don't we do that? One would think they would do that, but they don't. So, friends, there's much more to dig into here for today. Um, But for today, I should say, let me put it this way, very succinctly. The issue for all of these men on this day is one word. We all love this word. It's the word authority. That's the problem for both of these groups of men. The Roman guards knew whose authority they were under, and they feared him. (laughs) Rightfully so, right? In the case of the Jewish religious leaders, it was a little different, wasn't it? They were the ones in authority over the people of Israel, and there was no way in the world they were going to relinquish, easy for me to say, their authority to anyone. It's shocking, isn't it, that they would go to this length to not have to be under the authority of this Galilean Messiah? That's exactly what they did. Well, in our day, as I'm sure most of you have experienced, if you've been a Christian for a very long time at all, and have shared your faith in Christ, you've probably heard every argument, or as my favorite pastor preacher, Tim Keller, likes to call them, defeater beliefs, right, that is out there. Uh, The perennial favorites, of course, are, you know, Genesis, the creation account, you know, like creation evolution. You know, I don't know if I can believe in a God if I have to believe that God actually created the earth in six literal days. That's one of the defeater beliefs people have, you know, like, because some Christians do literally believe that, and maybe they should. But that's one of the, the, you know, the things that stumbles people. The other, of course, is the many stories in the Old Testament, like the flood. Really? It was a guy like Noah. He built a boat, and two animals of every kind were on the boat, and and then God wiped out everybody else. Really? I don't know. 
I don't know if I can believe that. It's probably just a story. Of course, there's the New Testament and the virgin birth. That's, that's an amazing miracle, but why? Like, and of course, there are all the miracles that Jesus performed, but let's face it. Let's face it. In, in one sense, none of these hold a candle to the resurrection, do they? It's funny to me, whenever people get into, you know, like apologetic debates with people, it's always about these other issues, right? It's rarely about the resurrection. That's that's the one. It should be the one. It is the one. And so I I think in our day and age, I think you will agree with me that most people believe, everyone knows that science proves, science proves, it's a fact, people don't rise from the dead. Right? Science proves that. Science believes that. A person, a human being who is clinically dead, science would say to you, scientists would say to you, medical professionals would say to you, cannot come back from the dead. It's a scientific fact, end of story. Stop disputing it. So the funny thing is, most people don't go to that one first, as I have already suggested, and that also begs another question. I mean, the truth is, what the Jewish leaders did in our text is not very different from what generations of skeptics have done ever since. So let's not be fooled. Listen, let's not be fooled by the modern thinking that medical science or modern science has disproved the resurrection. It's done no such thing. Nobody in the day of Jesus, before or reasonably close to the time after, believed it either. Why? Never seen it. <laughs> Never seen it happen. It didn't make any sense. They're, they're alive. It's okay. I heard the scream too. It's... But it's never happened. And so, yes, the bottom line is dead people don't rise the dead. I think I just, that was a double entendre there. So as Christians, however, our belief is not that some people sometimes get raised from the dead at all, is it? That's, that's not our belief. And Jesus happens to be one of them. It it is precisely the people don't rise from the dead. That's good news to us. It's never happened before. So the Christian agrees with scientists, ancient and modern. Yes, okay, people don't rise from the dead. So today the most significant problem most people have with the resurrection is not really, I think, the science but it's the same as we've seen in our text. Authority is the issue for those who reject the resurrection. You see, the prevailing worldview in our world today, and and quite frankly, many Christians are affected by this worldview, and sometimes we we, we can give nodding assent to, yeah, I I believe Jesus rose from the dead. Come on. I'm one of the peoples on the video. Like, I I would say that. I have to. I'm a Christian, right? But we, we, we tend to live as if maybe not quite sure. The prevailing worldview is born out of, of course, the Enlightenment in the 16 to 17, from the Enlightenment in the 16 to 1700s, which then swept through philosophy and politics in the 18th century, which then produced a belief that what was best for human flourishing was to do away with all of these, you know, these, these strange little superstitions and replace them with a more rational and enlightened worldview based in science. The result of this today is what Carl F. Truman used for the title of his recent book. I've recommended it before. It's a very dense read. 
but I would recommend everybody who's a Christian read it. It's a great book. And the title is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which highlights how radical individualism coupled with the relativization of truth has produced a culture where the only authority that exists is, you guessed it, you, me, self. So think about it. If the resurrection is true, and it is, then everything has indeed changed. Science is not the final authority. In addition, therefore, someone else is in a position of authority far beyond any one of us will ever be. There's proof of the resurrection right here in our text that we've read today. Did you see it? They had to bribe them. It's proof that they know it's true. And the story proceeded from that day. It's called the cover-up. Number three, the one with all authority. Verses 16 to 18. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just being able to make that statement is amazing. So here we have the key meeting on the mountain, somewhere in Galilee between the 11 apostles, less Judas, of course, and Jesus. The first words that Matthew tells us Jesus speaks to them is, are, all authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. You will, of course, note that it says here that despite seeing Jesus and worshiping him, some doubt it. This has is, this is caused a lot of confusion. I, I used to be confused about it. Honestly, I didn't. I'd read a lot about it. And uh, some commentators will say, and I, I would agree with them, that uh, the, the reason for that is that, yes, despite the, the 11 being noted here by Matthew, an apostle, uh, the, the, the women were probably there and, and other of the disciples were probably there too. All would have been invited. So some would have been there who had not seen him yet. And some of them would be like, we heard this, but... And so maybe they were doubting that. But the, the other option is this, and it's a plausible option. And, and that is, is that the way our English translates the Greek, sometimes the, 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 the sentences are in maybe the wrong order or whatever. So there's the possibility that also what they're doubting is what he just said. That he, that he has all authority. right? Because some of them would be going, well, <laughs> okay, Jesus, listen. Like, like, Four or five days ago, we believed you had all authority, right? Like, like you performed miracles, man. You preached with authority. We, and then, dude, they killed you. So there may have been that kind of doubt there, right? That's altogether possible as well. So the question for us this morning that we need to answer before we close is this. What authority does Jesus actually have? What does it mean by he has all authority? Well, first we must also understand this. That as part of being the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
before the incarnation, Jesus had what? All authority as the Son. He had all authority. However, when the Word became flesh, who is the Son, and became Jesus, the God-man, he laid down that authority. He laid it down. Now, now, did he speak with authority and did he perform authoritative acts? Yes, he did. Where did he get it from? The Holy Spirit. In the next few weeks in a series we're going to do, we're going to learn a little bit about the authority that Jesus gives to us when he tells us to go, therefore. Hmm. Not exactly the same authority. Don't, don't get confused. But. So he, he, he laid that off and yet he had that authority. So now on the dawn of this new day, All authority has been given to Jesus, and I want to suggest to you this morning, even more so. So so now all of the authority he had before he incarnated and lived as a perfect man has been given back to him, and more so. How so? Why so, would you say, right? Well, think about it. Think about it. Jesus, the Son, is the one who lived the perfect life that you and I cannot live as a man who died the death that you and I deserve to die that he didn't was buried and then rose. And so you know what? Now he has the authority to do what? Number one, forgive sin. Amen? He has authority to do that. The sacrifice has been made. It's done. He has authority to do He has authority to build his church. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) It's not my job. It's not our job, actually. We participate. But he has authority to do that. And here's probably one of the most important, and it should, keep, it should get our attention. He is the one who's been given the authority to judge the living and the dead when he returns. He has that authority. So Christians, this morning I need to talk to you before we close with this and ask this question. How deeply do we understand this? Honestly. How deeply do we understand that he has and appreciate that he has all authority? I'll speak for myself, and and I'll confess, as I've already alluded to, I've known this most of my Christian life. I've preached it. I I read it, and I'm like, yeah, good, glad he does. He does. He has all authority. I get that. Oh, really do I? I have believed it's true. However, I've often not lived my life, quite frankly, as if it were true or is true. In every way, in every facet of my life, the life of everyone else and of this world and this cosmos for that matter, when I look around, sometimes I'm like, oh, what's going on in our world and the injustices and the suffering and the death and the fires. and It's like nobody's in control. Hold on. Hold on. Now, I think that often we are so distracted by the attractions of this world and its beauty and its things, as well as the powers that be, that we feel, yes, we feel like we have no power over these things, but that they have authority over us in ways that we don't like. Who has all authority? If he has all authority, who do we go to when we feel like that? The one who has all authority? Maybe? I think it's a hint. It is. So let's be honest. Let's be honest. We have all grown up in this. My generation, the baby boomers, right? 55, born in 55. I know, I know. It's a long time ago. 
We were the original rebels. Okay? You millennials, forget it. You're not... No, we were the original rebels. Grew our hair, you know, bell-bottoms, tie-dyed t-shirts, inhaled. We were the rebels. Most of us. (laughs) Authority? Are you kidding me? I, I was raised in a generation, and I've seen it in my business life and since I've become a pastor. None of us submit to authority. None of us like. The word, it just, I remember putting it on a screen a few years ago because we were going through a passage to put the word authority on the wall, and I saw a number of people go, oh, like it, really? Let's be honest about it, guys, really. We're not actually submissive to all authority or to his authority Maybe because of that. Maybe that's the reason. So let me ask. Are you submissive to authorities in your life? Over you in this world? Over authorities that Jesus, God, has ordained over you? Romans 14. Go home. Read it. Are you? Am I? Submitting to their authority? Knowing that he has all authority? Let's start with authority figures. How about your parents? (laughs) You know, I'm talking about those of you who are older now, but not those of you who have kids and are going, no, I don't respect our authority. Parents, teachers, employers, then of course there's the police, bylaw officers, government, and here's one, your medical and health authorities. (laughs) Are you submissive? Oh gosh, I don't want to go there. Here's one for you. How about the elders and leaders of your local church who are under shepherds, under the authority of Jesus Christ to have authority over those in the church and the flock? Makes me think of what John wrote in his uh, beautiful epistle. In 1 John 4.20, John wrote this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. There's a juxtaposition there, right? If, if, if you say, I believe Jesus has all authority, and I am fully submissive to Jesus and his authority over me and my life, but you are not demonstrating that in your earthly relationships and life, there's a parallel here, isn't there? I think so. So here's another question. Whose authority are you placing yourself under that maybe you shouldn't be? I'm speaking to Christians here. Who could that be? Authors, bloggers, podcasters, friends, people who, you know, we we, we love and respect in certain areas and certain ways, but they are certainly not making Christ their their authority over their lives. But we're submitting ourselves to their teachings and their authority in life. So friends, uh, as I close, and I'm sure you're hoping this will happen, can I at least encourage you today that we all have some work to do in these areas? Amen? We all have some work to do in these areas. I certainly do. 
that very much, of course, relate to our view of authority that Jesus has over us. He has authority over our bodies, over our health, over the creation, over those who rule under him, over his creation, and over us, over our finances, our marriages, our families, our days, starting with today, tomorrow, and every other day that he gives us heartbeat and breath. He has authority over all those things. Good news? You can trust him and his authority over you. You really can. And in Christ, you can actually trust others to have authority, imperfect human beings, as they may be, to have authority that God has given to them. There's one more very important piece about authority that we need to see this morning, and I'll end with it. If we are not willingly submitting ourselves to authorities in this world, in this life, and then, of course, ultimately to Jesus, it will be very difficult for us to join Jesus on his mission for the church. Because you know how this chapter ends, right? I'm going to read it, and we're going to come back to it next week. You know what he says right after he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He then says, go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am going to be with you until it is done. It's a little paraphrase. Until the end of the age. And so friends, I really want to encourage you over the next three weeks to join us because we are going to do a series called The Mission of the Church, three-week series. Week one, the mission. Week two, the gathering. Why this? Three, the scattering. Pray with me, would you?